And on to today's speaker, welcome Lewis, Executive Vice President and Chief Historian of the Chicago History Museum. And Russell is a founding member of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. It was Russell, along with Dr. Bruce Craig, who was instrumental in establishing our organization. And it was Russell who for years hosted our meetings at the Chicago Historical Society, now, also, now known as the Chicago History Museum. Russell was there at our first meeting <clears throat> 25 years ago, and it seems so fitting that today he is speaking before us and helping us celebrate our 25th year. He also lives just a few blocks from here, like, like I do, uh, and basically lives around the corner from me. And we've often ridden the bus together in the mornings going to work, so I'll, I'll be having you up in a second, but welcome, neighbor. Thank you. <laughs> and. Uh, <clears throat> Gee, it's, it's interesting. I'm getting a chocolate lady from down the street. I get my neighbor to come and speak here, so a lot of good stuff in this neighborhood. Um, as Executive Vice President and Chief Historian of the Chicago History Museum, Russell is responsible for the day-to-day -day implementation of the museum's mission to creatively explore and showcase Chicago's history and culture, and to preserve, manage, build, and make accessible to the public the Chicago History Museum's collection of a staggering more than 22 million, 22 million documents and objects. He's been a member of the Chicago History Museum staff since 1982. During that time, Russell has, been the, has authored uh, historic photos of the Chicago World's Fair published in 2010. And, you know, he has, he has a whole list of things that he's published. Um, I, I won't I won't go into all the details, but he's done an awful lot. And he's in, been involved in the development of numerous exhibitions, including We the People, Creating a New Nation, 1765-1820, um, and A House Divided, America and the Age of Lincoln, Chicago. Russell has also led a number of digitization projects, including the Great Chicago Fire and the Web the Web of Memory, Wet with Blood, the Investigation of Mary Todd Lincoln's Cloak, and Studs Terkel. I used to work with Studs Terkel actually years ago. Um, interesting guy. Um, Conversations with America and the online version of the Chicago Encyclopedia. He serves as project director for the $27.8 million renovation of the Chicago History Museum. Russell also wrote the foreword to the Chicago Food Encyclopedia, which we did a program on uh, within the last year. And uh, I brought my copy down today so he could sign it. Um, and Colleen Sen, Colleen, you're at the, Colleen was also one of the editors for that wonderful Food Encyclopedia. He's talked to our group before, and we'll be speaking to our group again. So can you raise your hand again, Colleen? Yeah, thank you. And um, anyway, um, I've, I've given you a, quite a word salad here, so let's let's digest what Russell has to say. And Russell, come on, well you are here, so come on, come on over and give us your spiel. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank you, Scott. That was a very generous introduction, and yes, it's been a long time. 25 years, and uh, I've been out there with you most of that time. So this is my 
first time that I've had the opportunity um, to speak to the Colonial Historians, and I'm really honored and delighted um, to be able to um, to do that this morning. And uh, uh, you know, Studs Turkle lives right over here too on Castlewood. So I, I used to see him on the bus. Yeah. yeah. So he's he's a neighbor too. Anyway. It's a good neighborhood. If you're not from here, you should move here. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm, I consider myself an urban historian rather than a culinary historian. Though I'm, I love to eat food and I love uh, food history, but I am especially interested in how food ways illuminate um, the development of um, cities, especially a, a place like Chicago, which has such a an amazing relationship to food throughout throughout its history. So that's that's sort of my connection to to food history, and I like to bring those two things together. And that's what I'm hoping that I can do um, this morning for you in talking about the. Um, Chicago's Union Stockyard. So, in 1893, all roads led to Chicago as people from around the globe traveled to Illinois to see the World's Columbian Exposition. Most visitors to the fairgrounds were initially awestruck by the sheer size of the buildings. They were huge and they were also magnificent. And once they adjusted to this style of architecture and the magnitude of the buildings, um, the harmonious and formal arrangement of the design proved to be a powerful and enduring lesson for the public. So here we are looking um, in the Great Basin. We're looking from the east. You can see, see I have that. Chester French's statue of the Republic here, looking down toward the administration building. This is the agriculture building here. This is the um, uh, manufacturing of arts, and this is the electricity building. The scale of the buildings and their white facades powerfully reinforce a vision of unity, harmony, and beauty. I'm going to show a couple of other slides. So this is, a, again, another close-up of Jester French's Statue of the Republic. So it was about 60-something, um, <coughs> almost 70 feet tall, and this was 40 feet tall, so quite monumental. Another view then looking east toward the Peristyle, toward Lake Michigan, with the Statue of the Republic here in the basin. You can see, again, how grand uh, this architecture was and the effort to create this, this symmetry and this, this harmonious um, design all in the service of uh, making beauty available to the public. And so we here have a bird's eye view from the administration building looking over the fountain of time toward the peristyle agriculture building over here manufactured little arts building uh, over here. So this, this was the, really the, the focal point of the fair where 
all of these buildings were uniform height, and it was an attempt to, again, create this distinctive, harmonious, symmetrical um, assemblage of buildings, something that Americans had really never seen before, because most towns, small villages, and even big cities like Chicago were fairly haphazardly built. There was no rhyme or reason people built the way that they wanted. And here's another view. So the exposition was connected through a series of waterways. This is a canal that leads to the big lagoon that had other canals that led. So you could actually take um, motor launches or gondolas and traverse the entire um, uh, exposition grounds. The Manufacturing Mobile Arts Building was the biggest building in the world at the time. I mean, it was enormous, enormous. Now, you might say, how did they build these buildings? Well, they were built out of a material called staff, which was a, like a form of plaster. Uh, so all the facades were plaster to make them malleable so that artists could do work, and the interior were either wood or steel or a combination of that. And none of these were designed as permanent buildings. So the coordinate honor, which you saw earlier in particular, which included the Great Basin, the peristyle, the agriculture, machinery, administration, mines, electricity, manufacturing, little large building, aligned along a northwest-southwest axis, and was a visual and emotional focal point of the fair that forcefully reflected the ideology of a unified American culture and shared sense of progress. Between May and October, more than 27 million people visited the fair and came under its spell. Located in Jackson Park, and here is a map, um, between 56th Street on the north here, Stony Island here on the uh, west, of course, Lake Michigan on the uh, east, and then 67th Street on the south, um, the fairgrounds occupied uh, 690 acres, making it the largest World's Fair in history. Of course, we had this thing called the Midway Plaisance that sort of jutted out, but it was not considered part of the official fairgrounds. So it was a grand spectacle by any measure that provided a memorable experience for visitors and shape their impressions of Chicago. And here we have the administration building. And you can see there's artwork all over the place, sculpture, fountains. It was quite an incredible, um, unique experience for people. But there was another spectacle in Chicago that rivaled the White City as a symbol of Chicago's place in the world, located some 20 blocks north and 30 blocks west of the fairgrounds, the Chicago, Chicago Union Stockyards. Bounded by Halstead Street on the east, south were seen on the west, 39th Street on the north, and 47th Street on the south. Chicago's Union Stockyards occupied a 375-acre plot of land it opened in 1865, 
And the stockyards served a variety of purposes. It was a livestock market. It was a yard with pens to hold pigs, sheep, horses, and cattle. And it had facilities to slaughter animals and to process uh, them into meat. And here's the actual sort of location of the stockyards all in this area here. And so you see these were all the pens in this area here, and then all of the slaughtering and the packing took place in this area along, uh, along here. It featured 200 acres devoted to the yards, so where the, the animals were, uh, were housed. 200 miles of streets, 20 miles of water troughs, and 50 miles of feeding troughs. Nine railroads provided transportation into and out of the stockyards, and 75 packing companies employed 25,000 workers. One of the generations of workers representing immigrants and African Americans from neighborhoods like Bridgeport, Back of the Yards, Canaryville, Packtown found steady work in the stockyards. Armour's plant, and here we have a picture of Philip Armour, built in 1867 on 12 acres just west of the yards, was the first to mechanize processing and was considered the world's largest factory. So here is some of the products that Armour and company produced, breakfast sausage, and a um, bouillon here that was marketed to the French. And then, so they had even European uh, customers and markets. So the British Army in the Crimean War ate Libby canned meat. It shows you the reach of Chicago. And here are some of those immigrants that um, would have worked in the stockyards here in the trimming area of one of the one of the packing houses and this shows you the sort of the, the all the different ethnic groups so here's the union stockyards with the packing plants here to the west we have irish and polish here germans polish bohemians polish and slovak lithuanian uh, so a wide range of immigrants work there. And then here we see the black belt along here, easy access to the stockers. And so it drew in all of these groups from uh, these neighborhoods. The yard had a capacity of holding 20,000 cattle, 120,000 hogs, and 15,000 sheep. The scale of the operation was mind-boggling. In 1890, the Union stockyards received more than 13 million animals, specifically 3,485,292 cattle, 185,126,000 calves, 7,863,439 hogs, 2,183,788 sheep, 
and 101, 566 horses. Isn't that amazing? Staggering. It's just staggering to think of all those animals coming in and going out in some sort of version. Just really amazing. So Paul de Rosaire, who was a French social economist, who studied industrialization in America and Europe, he ranked a visit to the Union stockyards at the top of the must-sees for foreign visitors to Chicago. By 1900, more than a half a million tourists a year visited the stockyards and took tours. So this was a, the stockyard was a huge tourist attraction, especially for, um, for Europeans. Tourists, and here we have a, a, a brochure put out by uh, Nelson and Morris that just traces the evolution of, in this case, the hogs through the killing process, the uh, scraping, and then into the, the, the cooling room, and, and then smoking. So this is the sort of ephemera, the sort of uh, brochures that, that they would give to tourists as a, as a memento of, of their visit. So tourists typically had two reactions to their tour of the stockyards. The first was revulsion at the sounds, the smells, and witnessing the slaughter of so many animals. But the second impression, which actually was a more powerful one, was shock and astonishment at the scale and the efficiency of the operation. There was nothing like the stockyards anywhere else in the world. And visiting the stockyards helped foreigners better understand America, but it especially illuminated Chicago as a center of an industrial transformation that was not only reshaping America, but was reshaping the world. And so while the Columbian Exposition, here we're looking at the, what was in the Palace of Fine Arts, now the Museum of Science and Industry. Well, the Columbian Exposition represented America and Chicago's ability to emulate European culture and bring beauty to an urban setting it drew on architectural traditions from the past. It was locked into this view of recreations of 16th, 17th, 18th century European architecture. The stockyards, however, represented a purely American innovation and provided visitors with a unique encounter with modernism and with the future. So when Europeans came to Chicago, they thought Chicago was the city of the future. This was a place that was going to be the model for all cities. And when they saw the stockyards, they understood better why Chicago was going to be the city of the future, because of the scale of this industrial operation and the efficiency. And this, the, the, it wasn't just efficiency though, it was speed. So one of the trademark aspects of modernism 
was speed. So life in cities was accelerating, and life in Chicago um, moved at a very fast pace, much different than what Europeans uh, experienced in their own cities. So the, the Union Stock Yards was a product of a singular urban phenomenon. More than anything else in the city, it represented the dramatic evolution of Chicago in the 19th century into the city of tomorrow. Although we tend to associate the Industrial Revolution with Great Britain, it was Chicago that transformed industrialization into a powerful urban force that had far-reaching impact on the nation and the world. In Chicago, industrialization went hand-in-hand -hand with rapid urbanization. They fueled each other and accelerated the pace of change. And the result was a new kind of city. Chicago was indeed the shock city of the 19th century. This remarkable fusion of two powerful 19th century juggernauts, urbanization and industrialization, was a unique phenomenon that was the engine for Chicago's development and, in, and evolution as a city. So, how did this happen? From its humble beginnings in 1833, Chicago, by the 1890s, was becoming a major city and a new kind of urban phenomena that astonished the world. Between 1830 and 1990, Chicago was the fastest growing city on the globe. To give you a better sense of this remarkable and unprecedented growth, let me illustrate with a few comparisons. During the same 60-year period, the population of London almost doubled, increasing by 1.8 times. Paris more than doubled, growing 2.3 times. And Berlin more than quadrupled, increasing 4.1 times. On this side of the Atlantic, uh, New York City's population grew 4.1 times like Berlin's. But Chicago's population during the same period grew from 29,963 citizens to 1,099,850, an increase of almost 37 times. And during the decade of 1890 to 1900, Chicago increased its land area to 182.9 square miles, making it physically the largest city in the world. So here, Chicago is something totally amazing, new, exciting, different, frightening. All of these things uh, would pass through people's minds as they, as they experience Chicago. So how did this happen? Well, it was through a combination of geographical location uh, that made Chicago unusually well-suited for industrialization, the westward expansion of American settlements, uh, civic vision by leaders in Chicago, and shrewd business acumen. Chicago became a national crossroads where people, ideas, and products moved east and west north and south. With the completion of the Illinois and Michigan Canal in 1848, uh, and that's what we're seeing here, the canal that connected 
Chicago, via the Chicago River, to the Des Plaines, Illinois, and then the Mississippi River. So one could come through the Great Lakes, down to the Chicago River, through the canal, to the Illinois and Des Plaines, and then the Mississippi. It opened up the whole uh, Mississippi River Valley to commerce in a new way, and it made Chicago sort of the central place of exchange. That was in 1848, but also in 1848 was the arrival of the first railroad. And here we have, this isn't the first railroad, but this is the um, uh, Illinois Central Railroad that was uh, located uh, partially in the, in the lake here. And uh, right at the, um, Right where Millennium Park is at Randolph is where the train yards were. But the railroads revolutionized uh, transportation and business in America and in Chicago. Now, Chicago had the unique advantage of intertwining layers of transportation, water and rail, that allowed the city and its businesses to tap into raw materials, especially agricultural products, uh, far and wide and to penetrate deeply in all directions as part of uh, distribution networks. As a result, Chicago became the national center for the processing and shipping of agricultural products and agricultural implements. It was America's leading port for grain. It was the world leader in lumber production and shipping, and it became the center for the processing and shipping of meat. So here we see how this connection through rail, and of course the railroads sparked imagination. People thought we can, we can connect the world through the railroads and through um, uh, water transportation. Here is one of the lumber yards in Chicago, and we see here in the distance one of the many grain elevators along the Chicago River. Of course, Chicago is located between two heavily forested states, Wisconsin and Wisconsin, so they could take that timber and process it into lumber. And while much of the East was already built, Chicago built the West with its lumber. So all those towns in the West were mostly built with Chicago lumber. And then here is the grain elevator, again, located along. Here you see the rail car. Grain can be shipped via rail, by water on the INM Canal. It gave many, many options. And um, that gave Chicago a, a huge, huge advantage. And of course, here is the meatpacking. Here at the, our favorite location in Chicago, the Union Stockyards. Don't mind that smoke, it's not pollution. <laughs> the fusion of industrialization and urbanization also fostered two important characteristics that supercharged 19th century Chicago. Innovation and the creation of new markets. Chicago was fertile ground for new ideas and the city's position as a national crossroads brought new thinking about commerce and the city 
and a lot of businessmen to think more imaginatively, not only about making industries faster and more efficient, but also to focus their attention on creating new markets for these industrial products. So the, develop the development of the Union Stock can be illuminated as a series of innovations. So here we have sort of a, a bird's eye view of the stockyards. Uh, this is actually north here, this is south. These are all of the plants, again, to the west. And here we have the actual yards, and they're encircled by uh, rail infrastructure, those nine uh, railroads that provided um, access into and uh, out of so that livestock could be shipped in and livestock and uh, processed meat could be shipped out. Um, so the first uh, uh, packing houses in Chicago grew up along the uh, branches of the Chicago River in prairie era areas just outside the city in the 1830s and the 1840s. As the city grew, packing houses and their waste became an urban nuisance. So there was a lot of dumping of what they call offal uh, into the Chicago River. And then the Chicago River, of course, flowed into the lake, and the lake was a source of drinking water. People didn't like to get up in the morning and see uh, a dead cow floating in the, in the Chicago River. It didn't, didn't, wasn't the image of the city that people uh, wanted to have. So um, the expansion of the city also impeded driving livestock through Chicago. So livestock was also sometimes uh, driven through Chicago streets. As the city grew, as its population grew, packing houses just weren't part of the equation. And so um, they had to move on and relocate um, in other areas. Uh, during the 1840s, uh, Cincinnati actually had earned the title of Porkopolis of America. It led Chicago and other cities in the processing of barrel pork and lard, primarily because of its position on the Ohio River that allowed it to ship its products uh, to the Ohio, down to Mississippi, to the heartland of America, and eventually to, down to New Orleans. But during the 1860s, uh, Chicago uh, meat packers landed lucrative contracts with the Union Army uh, who were interested in having the meat shipped by rails and that eclipsed Cincinnati as uh, the meat packing capital of America and Chicago never looked back and uh, while Cincinnati continued to do some meat packing it never had the, the um, the leading position it once had. So in response to the expanding city, the leading meat packers of the city, uh, of the Chicago Meat Packers Association and uh, Chicago's nine largest railroads joined forces in 1865 and incorporated the Union Stockyards and Transit Company and built a facility, as we've seen, south of the city limits. Now, the consolidation of an industry through shared infrastructure was a major economic innovation that propelled Chicago as a unique kind of industrial city and transformed the way America conducted business and the way it worked. 
So nothing like this had ever been conceived before, and this took an incredible amount of imagination. We take it for granted, of course you would consolidate, but nobody had ever done anything like this before. And to do it on this scale was, was truly unprecedented. They shared the pens, they shared the rail lines, that allowed uh, all of these, these 75 packing houses and these railroads all to flourish. So here's a view, uh, early view of the, sort of a sanitized view with not a lot of livestock and everything looks very clean and orderly. And of course they would depict the stockers as a very, very nice place to, to work. So opening Christmas Day, 1865, 375 acre facility was, un as I said, unprecedented in scale and efficiency. Water troughs, we heard there were, uh, I think, 50 miles of water troughs, were filled daily with 500,000 gallons of water. More than 100 tons of hay were consumed daily during the peak season. Animals were kept in 500 pens covering uh, 60 acres, but by 1868, just three years later, the number of pens had expanded to over 2,300 covering 100 acres. These pens were coupled, were grouped into four great shipping and receiving yards, each of which was assigned to one major railroad. Um, surrounding the entire facility was a broad loop of tracks that made loading and unloading um, efficient. So here we see some cattle, pens, early view of stereographic, uh, some sheep uh, going in through the, the very famous stockyard gate designed by Daniel Burnham, who also was, of course, the major visionary behind the World's Columbian Exposition. So he got around um, to do this. Um, another view looking to the west with the um, packing plants here. Let's say, let's say Swift, Swift Armor there, one and two. And you can see these, these uh, bridges for people to walk and also bridges to move cattle uh, and other livestock into areas holding pens for slaughter. So they had a, a system for moving them into pens to uh, holding areas uh, when they were going to be slaughtered. And here we see again the, the rail cars, you know, right here. Here's some of the bales of those hundred tons of hay that were consumed daily during the peak season. And so it was a very, very efficient uh, system. And of course they had to be clean, the animals had to be watered, they had to be fed. This was again, as, as I have said, again, it was, it was an enormous operation. There's another view and yet one more view of Swift and Armour, uh, two of the largest of the, of the meat packing plants. And so this, these are postcards. So again, if you were a tourist, you would get a postcard typically of the stockyards that you would send to your friends or your family. Oh, we visited the stockyards today. What an incredible place. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. Amazing. In addition to the meat of the livestock, the byproducts of meat packing, hides, 
hoofs, entrails, bladders, bones, blood, and cartilage also became valuable commodities that were sold or used by affiliated industries located near the stockyards that exchanged these throwaway parts for meat packing into fertilizer, ammonia, glycerin, gelatin, athletic equipment, hairbrushes, buttons, shoes, gloves, glue, all of which supported Chicago's furniture, millinery, clothing, and tannery industries. So here we see uh, some soap that was, again, soap and other cosmetic products that they used uh, some of the byproducts on. Of course, hair brushes. Now, artist brushes, you know, when they say camel hair, probably not really camel hair. They used the hair from the inside of the hog's ears was collected for brushes for artists. Pretty amazing. Uh, all kinds of brushes with different sort of kinds of bristles that you would use for that. Of course, the leather used for shoes, for gloves. And here we have a wonderful cartoon of a goat and a steer realizing what their future is. It's being shot. It's going to become half skin and boots and shoes so and then also furniture as i said uh they used uh, horse hair of course as a filler and also to as a weave cushions and then the glue and then they made creative use the furniture industry made creative use of uh some of the byproducts of the uh, meat packing to make these incredibly comfortable chairs. <laughs> so this is in our collection. You can actually buy these on, I think they probably sell them on eBay or they sell them at auction houses. Uh, they're, they were actually fairly common, but uh, uh, any interesting conversation pieces. So the stockyards utilize innovations developed elsewhere, but again, what they did is they did it on a scale never imagined before. So the most critical innovation after the creation of consolidated facilities was the disassembly line for dressing pork car carcasses, uh, which prefigured Henry Ford's assembly line. So for the Model T. So Henry Ford got his idea for manufacturing cars from the meatpacking industry and the, the disassembly of the animal into constituent parts. Um, it was, again, first developed in Cincinnati because that was Porkopolis initially. But this mechanized approach uh, originated as this horizontal wheel with they put eight hogs, I think, on this wheel. So they would lift up a hog by its one of its legs, put it on this wheel, and that would move it around, and then it would come down over here, and they would move it onto a, another sort of a rail, and it would move through its various um, 
moments of this, of this assembly, uh, being having its throat cut uh, and, and the blood uh, let out, uh, and then uh, gutted and cleaned. And so there were eight separate steps um, that carried the pig again through this overhead rail through the uh, butchering process. And by dividing it into these, these different stations and steps, it allowed each step in the process to become more faster and more specialized. It resulted in that delayed the process of the case, so the meat was fresher, and allowed them, of course, to process uh, more, more animals. Um, so here's a view of inside sort of a more of a graphic, it's not exactly the way it would have been organized in terms of floors, but it does show you the different uh, specialized areas uh, in the process of um, taking a live animal and turning it into consumable uh, food products. Although the Chicago Packers had taken the Cincinnati model and applied it on an unprecedented scale, which by using the railroad, rather than water transportation, made Chicago, the port, made Chicago the port capital of the world. They still faced a major problem. Port packing was limited to November, December, and January. Only a very limited number of hogs destined for Chicago consumption were butchered in other times of the year. As a result, this vast capital-intensive enterprise stood idle for almost three quarters of the year. So that was an incredibly inefficient way to run your business. The railroad provided the solution. As early as 1858, Chicago meat packers had begun to ship ice by rail to, to facilitate um, packing pork in the summer months. Since Americans preferred their uh, pork in the winter, most of the summer packed pork went to foreign markets. By the 1870s, Chicago meat packers uh, were packing year-round and saw only a slight winter peak in butchering live hogs and a fairly even distribution of pork production over the entire year. And because the, pork, the packing plants did not close, people were employed on a consistent basis. They could rely that they were going to have annual employment. Also equally important, farmers could count on a steady year-round market for their hogs. So through efficiencies of scale and the linking together of several innovations, Chicago had not only conquered the seasons, but they had created a new market for their meat products. So this was, again, really important. It created more jobs. It brought more people to Chicago. That meant the city was going to grow, there was more profit, there was more money invested. So all of this was working together because Chicago meat packers were innovative and they were able to come up with um, solutions. As the use of ice greatly expanded pork production in Chicago, it absolutely revolutionized Chicago's beef market. Initially, most steers at the Union Stockyards, with the exception of a fraction destined for Chicago dinner tables, were delivered live to eastern urban markets where they were butchered. So Chicago really was not much more than a transfer point in the journey of the steer 
from the west to the east. So butchering was really focusing on the hogs. Cattle came. They were uh, housed in the pens for a while. Then they were put on uh, rail cars and they were shipped to markets um, in, the, in the west. But shipping live animals by rail was extremely inefficient. You had to feed and water the animal. You had to keep the car clean to prevent disease and clean up after the animals uh, left the car. The live steer was thus an inefficient container for beef. It included many unwanted parts and extra weight. And it was more difficult to account for it as it moved from one locale to a number to another on the rail. The usable meat in a typical steer was about 55% of its total weight. Thus, 45% of the steer was wasted shipping. So this is the thinking that these meat packers did. You know, why should I ship 45% of a steer that gets me nothing? It's only 55% that's going to be used in meat. So they thought, we've got to come up with some kind of solution for this. So turning the stockyards into a place where the steer was exchanged for beef and not just for a rail car uh, and, and as a transfer point was much more efficient and much more profitable. Since Americans had a preference for unsalted beef, packers were eager to see if ice could be used to ship fresh beef by rail. George H. Hammond of Detroit is credited with the first use of uh, a refrigerated rail car in 1868. He moved to Chicago to be close to the center of the meatpacking industry, building a plant near an ice carving business on the banks of the Calumet River in what would eventually become Hammond, Indiana, of course, named after him. Here we see a uh, um, card for his own meatpacking company. Although Hammond built up a successful business shipping beef, it was Gustavus Swift who was the key to shipping dressed beef by rail. After several experiments, he developed a system of ice and brine to keep a car cold. And he also developed a national uh, system of ice, harvest, ice harvesting so that the ice in the car could be replenished along the four-day trip east. So he came up with the idea of how do we keep the car cold as it journeys from Chicago to, say, New York. And you've got to create this operation of harvesting ice and then being able to replenish this ice with this uh, combination of brine in the cars along that journey to keep um, car cold and meat fresh. This technical solution for dressed beef thus came rather quickly uh, and not at an insurmountable cost, but more difficult was marketing dressed beef to a population that had an aversion to the idea that they were eating beef that had been prepared in Chicago a week earlier. Most Americans, fearing spoiled meat, 
preferred fresh meat butchered locally. Just to show you, you know, again, you know, Swift was this incredible uh, person. Now this, this is interesting. This is his display. Anybody know where this display was at? Columbian Exposition. This was his display at the Columbian Exposition of, um, of his industry. One of his cars. Swift refrigerator line. Good for advertising as well. So the only advantage that dressed meat had over fresh meat was, was its price. Typically it was a half cent to one cent a pound uh, cheaper. But Swift was a shrewd marketer and he had deep insights into consumer technology, excuse me, psychology. He knew that most butchers had few cuts of meat on view in their shops. Their meat was a side of beef from which they cut your personal order. Swift reasoned that if he created more cuts of beef, he could create a demand for them, and that butchers or consumers who saw the cuts would impulsively buy more. Particularly, he promoted cuts like the plate, on here and round and chuck. So these are the three cuts that he um, promoted, which were much less popular than the loin or the ribs. He thought if he could sell these parts of the animal at a reasonable price, he would maximize profits from the entire animal. To promote Chicago dressed beef in eastern cities, Meat packers opened branch offices and cold storage warehouses there. But what Swift also did, because he had the, the power of the industry behind him and a lot of money and a big ego, he undercut the local butchers. He sold his meat dirt cheap. The local butchers could not compete with it. He sold it at a loss to get the consumers to, to begin to like these cuts of meat and begin to buy it and to get over their aversion to buying, again, meat from Chicago. So he really put the local butchers out of business uh, to make uh, dressed meat um, profitable and consumed by everybody. So that's a pretty remarkable, I think, story and shows, again, how these um, meat packers were ingenious, again, not only in terms of their ability to understand um, the industry and make the process of meat packing efficient, but they also understood how to create new markets. And that was really key. And nobody else in America was doing that the way they were in Chicago. So it worked. Swift won the hearts and minds and wallets of the American people, and Chicago dressed beef became sought after all over the nation and even as far away as Great Britain. Resistance to Chicago dressed beef, as I said, came from the local butchers and the railroads themselves. The railroads were upset because they were making more money on shipping the livestock. 
As a result, Chicago's big three Packers, Philip Armour, Gustavus Swift, and Nelson Morris, were in a position to not only influence the price of livestock on one end of the process, but also the price of prepared meat on the other. Beef then sort of eclipsed pork as um, what rules Chicago's uh, union stockyards, and the entire system became a huge capital-intensive enterprise that again reflected Chicago's penchant for innovation and for creating and exploiting new markets. By 1900, Chicago packing houses employed 25,000 of the nation's 68,000 pack house workers. Packers faced challenges from their employees. First organized by the Knights of Labor, packing house workers struck for an eight-hour day in 1886, but public backlash against the Haymarket uh, affair violence brought the, the stockyard strike to an end. In 1904, the amalgamated uh, meat cutters and butchers, worker, workmen of North America, engaged in a long uh, and bitter strike over wages. We have some of the uh, striking workers there over wages, and then black workers were brought into the packing houses during World War I to fill labor shortages, uh, but also brought in as scabs in the 1920s, creating uh, racial um, strife among the ranks of workers. City government tried to regulate the pollution in the river, you know, Bubbly Creek, now it's called Bubbly, it bubbles because it's all that decaying material is, is giving off uh, carbon dioxide and other forms of gases. Um, they tried to regulate the suckers beginning in the 1890s with little success even after that area was annexed to the city. So in, in, the, in the 1890s, the stockyards actually became incorporated into the city of Chicago, but they had very little power to do anything about it. Government inspection of exported pork began in the 1890s. Upton Sinclair's path-breaking sensational book, uh, which was an expose of the packing house and the stockyards, the jungle, led to the Meat Packing Meat Inspection Act of 1906. <coughs> Government inspectors uh, did not begin to grade pork and beef until the 1920s. The formation by Swift, Armour, and Morris of the National Packing Company in 1905 brought charges of a beef trust and antitrust proceedings against the new conglomerate. So they really were a monopoly. They really were this trust that, as we saw, was able to control the price of the livestock coming in and the price of the meat um, going out. Um, although the courts failed to indict the three companies, they agreed to disband in 1912 and in 1920 they sold their holdings uh, in the stockyards, cold storage facilities, uh, food businesses, and retail um, meat uh, business. So here's a, here's a view of Whiskey Row. Uh, with the stockyard workers with their dinner pails outside. 
The Union stockyards remained active through the Great Depression and World War II. After the war, uh, however, uh, meatpacking changed dramatically. Here's some of the black workers working in the stockyards. Here's how the stockyards looked in 1947, so not a whole lot different than it looked earlier. Of course, they had the International Amphitheater was part of the stockyard facilities, and they had stock shows there. Uh, and those were sort of big events. Here they are welcoming the billionth animal to the Chicago stockyards. There's lots of pageantry associated with the stockyards. And uh, I imagine this is a 4-H youngsters who have uh, raised their animal and have gotten awards. And there's, of course, the queen of the stockyards, <laughs> princess, whatever she is. But uh, after the war, meatpacking changed dramatically as ranchers began selling their animals at a young age to commercial feedlots instead of raising them to maturity and sending them to Chicago. So the feedlots gave rise to meat processing plants built nearby, and the industry shifted dramatically away from Chicago to western locales like Cheyenne and Omaha. The rise of an interstate highway system and the development of refrigerated trucks was yet another reason to bypass Chicago's rail-centered stockyards uh, as trucks brought meat directly to the supermarkets. So what had been, you know, a tremendous innovation in the 19th century into the early 20th century, this rail-centered meatpacking industry, it became something that worked to get them. It was a, it was a relic from the past. As, as the world changed, the stockyards could not keep up with that change. They, their infrastructure was built around other kinds of technology that were being uh, made obsolete and, and displaced. And so the stockyards finally closed their doors in 1970. Uh, of course, uh, meatpacking industries associated with Chicago continued to be household names. Here we see the dancing Swift products. That's very sunny sort of thing. Everything really sort of closed in 1871. Uh, the stockyards are gone, but the legacy of Chicago's meatpacking industry lives on in the city's steakhouses. Although New York and Kansas City have cuts of beef named after them, ironically, Chicago doesn't. But Chicago's reputation as a steak town endures, and the city's steaks are rated among the best in the nation. While chops have been a mainstay of restaurant and dining for centuries, um, the steakhouse is a relatively new kind of eatery. Now, it's, I tried to find out you know, where was the first steakhouse in Chicago or anywhere. Wasn't able to do that. And even our wonderful encyclopedia doesn't tell us that. Uh, and I don't know if it's possible to find that out. I did a lot of searching in the Tribune, you know, looking for ads and things like that. I never really sort of found any. So 
someday somebody's going to run across one and find it. So people served steaks in all kinds of Chicago restaurants, but um, steakhouse, well, we, we, the one thing we do know is that uh, the Stockyard Inn, which was part of the uh, facilities down at the Union Stockyards, did have steakhouses, and it opened in 1912, located at uh, Halstead and 42nd Street next to the International Amphitheater. Uh, it featured actually several restaurants, and so here's a view of the Stockyard Inn. And another view. And here we have a menu with some of the meat temperature markers taped to it. And the inside of one of them, here's another. Inside, yeah, yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? And sort of a more complete menu. And then a little, little story about the stockyards and you know, you can get a tour, and then here we have the sirloin room, and in the sirloin room you could pick out your own cut, and you could brand it with a, um, a hot iron with your initials. But that was not really sort of fun uh, thing to do before you uh, got to eat it. Uh, uh, and here's a, so that's the menu. Here's another one from the sirloin room, the nice, sort of a hide cover there. Uh, and then a little explanation of the tradition of the stockyard inn. Uh, there was the matador room that was decorated with bullfighter memorabilia. And then there was the saddle and sirloin club, which was a more exclusive sort of private dining experience that showcased a gallery of famous uh, uh, figures in the world of uh, agriculture. So here we have another example. So when the stockyards closed in 1971, it was very difficult for the stockyard inn to attract a steady clientele, and it eventually closed uh, in 1977. It was actually demolished in 1977. So that came to an end. We do have, again, some great steakhouses in Chicago. Gene and Giorgetti's is Chicago's oldest steakhouse currently, established in 1941. Many of you probably dine there. It's a family-run business. It's legendary, features sort of old-school dining experience. Um, uh, other notable steakhouses in Chicago are, of course, uh, Gibson's. Uh, Lowry's, Prime Rib, uh, and Morton's as well. Some of the uh, steakhouses that used to be in Chicago uh, that are gone are uh, Barney's Market Club, especially catered to the conventioneer crowd. And again, that was conventioneers love to come to Chicago and go out and have a steak. That was one of the things that you did if you were here at the convention. And um, I, I found an article where uh, Barney, during World War II, he apparently illegally acquired more meat than he was allowed by rationing. And um, 
they were trying to close his restaurant down and he was objecting. So that was kind of interesting. That steak joint was a place on Well Street. Again, very popular. And even um, we had uh, quite a few uh, places out in the suburbs. Um, I think this is in Forest Park. Elmer. Elmer's, okay. Uh, Uncle Andy's Cow Palace in Palatine. And the Pie, is this Forest Park? Yeah. This is Forest Park. So, you know, you can still find steaks in Chicago, and uh, as I said, they're they're still they're still rated very high, and it's 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 the one way that we as Chicago's can really still make that connection to this incredible enterprise called the Union Stockyards that. Uh, was such a powerful force in Chicago. So thank you very much. <laughs> We're happy to answer any questions. Yes? More of a statement, but in the superlatives, um, the fire in 1910 mm -hmm. in the stockyards had the greatest loss of life for first responders until 9-11. Yeah, and there is a, there is a, um, memorial to the firefighters and that fire down. If you go down to the uh, stockyard gate, it's down there. And that's now, if you haven't been down there, it's worth a visit. It's, uh, it's an industrial park now. They, there is a, um, uh, there's, there's at least one meat packing uh, business down there right now. Yes? You mentioned horses. Um, did they do a lot of production of horse meat, and where were they selling? I don't think they did a lot of horse meat. I think, again, it was just the facilities made the transit of horses. I mean, obviously horses were used for labor, for transportation, so they were a, a highly sought commodity. I don't think there was a lot of horse meat that was, uh, that was used. We're not French. <laughs> so I've had, I've had, um, I've had steak tartare with horse meat. It's delicious. <laughs> yes. What's the building that's next to the gate? Um, has a clock tower on it. Is that a bank? I've been told that it was, it was once like the stockyard bank or something. Uh, yeah, it might be. I mean, it, at the History Museum, we have, in our cafe, we have the, the arch, the stone arch from the National Livestock Bank that was there. So if it, if it, if it is, I, and I remember seeing the clock there at the clock tower. But there's a building that still stands. Yeah, but it's not the original building. So, yes. What happened to Nelson Morris Company? Um, I don't really remember what happened. They, I mean, they, they closed. I, the one thing I know is that um, uh, Nicholas Pritzker, who is the, um, the great leader of the Pritzker family who immigrated from Russia, worked for that company as a 
uh, message boy for a while, but um, I'm not sure what happened to that. Does anybody know? Yes. Yes, sir. Um, I've heard it said that uh, Swift, the railroads refused to transport the boxed beef to the East Coast, and that Gustavus Swift actually engineered the construction of a railroad through Canada to get the meat to the East Coast. Is there any truth in that? I have not heard that. I don't know if that's, does anybody know that? It seems unlikely to me that, I think he had quite a bit of power with uh, the railroads. So, and again, the thing to remember about the stockers, it wasn't just a meat packing operation, it was a transit operation. So it was, it was meat packers and rail um, owners and developers who, joined interest to create uh, these facilities. Yes? Um, is there any connection to the current very popular Ruth's Ruth Chris Steakhouse from years ago? I don't think it's, uh, I don't think that's a Chicago. Uh, no, but it's just no. so prevalent. Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, Um, I think they're southern. Yeah, I mean, there are chains of steakhouses and, you know, like that. And Oklahoma City actually has some great um, steakhouses affiliated with its um, um, stockyards area. And I imagine Omaha and Kansas City and those places sort of unique. But, yeah, it's a, it's a chain. And it's it's a high end, you know. Uh, it's not Ponderosa, but it's, it's a national uh, chain, you know. So I don't know where their stakes come from. Yes. Second question. Yes, my second question was I, I was a bit late. Uh, is there a particular variety that is uh, preferred or was once preferred uh, breed of cattle per se, like? White-faced Herefords, or is that the truth of those? Yeah, I think Angus was, was oh, uh, Angus. Herford and Never Angus. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yes? Um, this goes back to the World's Fair. Was the Museum of Science, and, the building that became the Museum of Science and Industry, was that the only one that was a permanent structure? And if so, why was that? Good question. Uh, it was the Palace of Fine Arts, and it was made out of, it was made a permanent building for insurance purposes. So the people that had their art there saw, considered them very valuable assets, and they wanted them to be insured. So it was meant to be fireproof. Now, the Museum of Science and Industry today, I don't know if anybody actually knows how much of it is original. There's not a whole lot of it that's original. It's been rebuilt as an exact replica over the years. I don't know if anybody really knows, but I know it's not, it's not all original. It, it did not completely survive, but it is the one building. And if you, um, you know how big that building is, that was one of the smaller buildings on that fairgrounds. It was not that big. Um, I could, um, maybe I 
Now the field museum was also part of the Columbia exhibition, was it? Well, the precursor of the field museum was called the Columbia Museum, which was originally in the building where the Museum of Science and Industry, uh, the, field, the Field Columbia Museum. And um, let me get back to the World's Fair here. Um, the map. Um, so yeah, here's the, the art gallery. That's it. See how big that is compared to this? Or this? Or any of these? These were huge buildings. Now, this was the stock pavilion. So they did have livestock shown there. So, um, anyway, the so the first collection, the original collection of anthropological specimens from the World's Fair that were either acquired or given to um, the Field Museum, Columbia Museum, were, were here. And then when the Field Museum built its new museum in 1920, I want to say 26, where it is now, they moved up there. And then this became the Museum of Science and Industry in the 1930s. But there was a period when that Museum of Science and Industry went into disrepair, wasn't it? And yeah, it wasn't, I don't know what it was used for in between, but um, before the Museum of Science and Industry moved in there, there was a period. Because I think Rosenwald was, was instrumental in Yes, it. yes, he was. He was. Yes, sir. Oh, uh, it was bubbly creek. It's still, still bubbles. It's still bubbles. That's right. Yeah, it's, I was down there just uh, the day before. It's, it's the high-end housing that's developed along it. Uh, you know, people who, I guess, accept anything uh, as parts being next to water. <laughs> yeah, well, the the uh, the Chicago Maritime Museum is in the Bridgeport Art Center and looks right out onto Bubbly Creek, which, you know, they know. I think probably a lot of people have no idea what Bubbly Creek and what its historical significance and even what was there. Um, you know, we are a, Americans are a. Regrettably, a forgetful lot, and uh, you can't forget it. It's still bubbles. Today. It's still bubbles, but people probably think, "Oh, it's a spring. It's spring fed. Isn't that nice? You know, we got this fresh water right here." And where is it? Huh? Where is it? Bubbly Creek. Yeah. Uh, well, if you go, let's see, thirty. Thirty-fifth. Thirty-fifth West. Yeah, like thirty-fifth and uh, Morgan. Yeah. And yeah. it's still poison. Yeah. 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 I wouldn't go swimming in it. I'm sure. So you had a yes, each of you. Um, I know between 1861 and 1865, there was a prisoner of war camp in the 30 hundreds south, mm -hmm. and um, 
Was, is that was is it true that the stockyards took all their um, spoiled meat and fed it to the poor Confederates? Is that true? <laughs> it is. Camp Douglas uh, was. I mean, originally it was a. Uh, induction center for Union troops and then it was transformed into a um, prison camp for Confederate soldiers in Chicago. It was one of the largest, one of the most notorious in of the Union camps. Not, uh, not as bad as, as uh, uh, Andersonville for the Confederates, but it was still bad. And had as many as I think 15,000 people there at one time. So it's, it's, it's kind of an area where Prairie Shores is and that, that area. So it was a little, little further east and a little further north of where the packing house. Um, the, the, the people that ran the camp might have bought the bad meat, I don't know, and fed that. I, I, Personally, I don't think they got any meat. Um, I think that was considered too good for them. So, um, you know, most of the people who died, the over the 5,000 Confederate prisoners who died, um, died from starvation or disease uh, there. Um, so I don't, I, I don't know, I haven't heard that. I, I would tend to doubt that they would have given them any kind of meat, to be honest with you. They might have given them salt pork, that kind of thing, but not fresh, fresh meat. Or meat that was fresh with its rotting. So, yes. When I moved from uh, New York to the South Suburbs, uh, everyone would say, you know there are days that the odor will kill you. Uh, and they mentioned the stockyards. When actually did these stockyards close up and the land become prominent now? Well, stockyards closed in 1971, and uh, it, it, it's only been, I don't know, maybe in the last decade or 15 years or 20 years that, that it became an industrial park and was being redeveloped. Mm -hmm. But the smell was real the odor, depending on which way the wind was blowing. And if you grew up in back of the yards, it just, you know, that's what you smelled every day. I mean, you just, you, you live with it. Um, I'm trying to think of his name. Um, the guy that ran Stop and Shop. Um, uh, I'll think of his name in a minute. Anyway, he, uh, there was a, an article in the Tribune, he was interviewed in the Tribune, and, and he said one of the things that he missed most was when the smell of the stockyards ceased. <laughs> he was unusual. But he, he missed it. Yes. In New York, I think there's a company called Allen Brothers. And I'm not sure if it's a restaurant or a purveyor. But they're supposed to have like the best steaks. Do you know anything about it? I don't. I think they're in Brooklyn, maybe. I doubt that they they're do. Supposed to be the they're best. from New York. How could they have and better steaks in Chicago? 
We make the mistakes here. Still. Yes. Yes, ma'am. The history of that prisoner of war. Ah, okay. That was Oh, Griffith's funeral home? Yes. Ernie Griffith, yes. Was a black guy. Yeah, and, and I knew him very well. Yeah, he was a remarkable person, yes, Ernie Griffith, and he, he his uh, his grandfather, I think, was mustered into the the, uh, the black troops in the Union Army at Camp Douglas, so he had a familial connection. Um, but because he lived on this land, and he 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 really had this sort of expansive compassion for. Uh, all you know, Americans that were killed in the war, whether they were Union or Confederate. So he flew an American flag and a Confederate flag, and it it you know it stopped a lot of people in their tracks to say, "What the heck is going on here?" He was uh, honored by the Sons of the Confederacy, um, and every year he would go down. The, the Sons of the Confederacy has. I don't know if they do it now, but they used to do it. I went to a couple of theirs. A, um, just a sort of a uh, recognition of the, um, these Confederate soldiers that died down in um, uh, Oakwood Cemetery. And Ernie was there dressed in his uh, Union uh, uh, colonel's uniform. So. He was a very, very nice man, uh, very successful businessman. And then uh, after he passed, his children, uh, son-in-law, tried to keep uh, things intact for a little while, and they couldn't, and they sold it, and they turned the place into a school. They're now doing some archaeological work down there. Uh, we've also placed a Illinois State Historical Society um, marker on the site. So it's getting some recognition. Thank you. Uh, we're we're going to have to eat now. We're way beyond our time. There are so many wonderful, meaty questions. And uh, we have brisket, Deb Silverstein is prepared brisket, and Barbara Cook, uh, Kaleem prepared. Season. She made something from a uh, beef salad from the Scotch Yard set. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, so let's eat.